This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart. From Oakland, California to Hamilton, Massachusetts, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. This summer, my family and I have been on the road, slowly making our way back to Oakland after nine months away. If you've been listening, then you already know that story, what we've been calling our pandemic odyssey. It's a story with a lot of twists and turns, and there were some rough waters along the way. But there were also gifts of hospitality, friendship, and community. Some of those we've experienced as we've traveled from one coast to the other and now back again. But the most profound experience of this pandemic odyssey hasn't been our travels or even the episodes we're creating. It's been getting to share a bit of life with the 11 graduates of our podcast training program. Admittedly, we've struggled to find the right name for this program because what we're doing is a little hard to pin down. For most of season two, we've been calling it our apprenticeship program because we believe that the best way to learn is by doing. We're inviting our apprentices into the creative process and then coaching them through each and every step of the way. But over time, we realized that apprenticeship sounded too much like internship. While we had in mind a carpenter guiding her apprentice in crafting artful furniture, others might be thinking more about a certain reality TV show that bore no resemblance to what we were doing. Recently, we finally settled on calling it our podcast springboard program because we're doing all that we can to launch our graduates into careers in audio. We aren't just teaching a set of skills. We're providing mentorship, community, and support for life. Right now, until July 31st, we're accepting applications for our fall cohort. For the month of July, we're sharing with you what some of our graduates have to say about their experience. Then you'll hear some of the episodes they worked on, which were some of our favorites. I hope you enjoy getting to know these incredible women as much as we have. Here's Sarai Waters, Isabel Obrecht, and Alana Herlins, who were graduates of our very first cohort. Being a part of the training program was one of the best experiences that I've had in my life. It really gave me a sense of community during a time where everybody was locked in their homes. If you're looking for a training program to be a part of, if you're looking to be involved in podcasting, if you're looking to get a community of creatives, if you're trying to brush up your producing skills, your writing skills, your audio editing skills, I would highly recommend the experience to anybody. The amount of creativity and inspiration that we gave to one another, the flow of energy, it was just, it was beautiful. This apprenticeship has been unlike anything I've ever done before. I've done internship slash bootcamp things, but really this is completely unique. It was just so useful and practical. I had so much hands-on learning and all the while just totally loving the whole team that I was working with. This experience was incredibly life-changing for me. I think it made me more positive. It gave me this network of wonderful, creative people to talk to and befriend. It put me in contact with Laura and Nate, who are wonderful, incredibly supportive people and are the kinds of people that you wish every industry was full of. 
this apprenticeship is really for people who want to learn about all the aspects of podcast production and who really want to spend time learning about this process people who want to make a podcast themselves and work in production in the future you are trusted to do great work and it really makes you want to rise to the occasion in a way that i haven't felt in a program like this before Laura and me are so supportive and helpful in letting you figure out what about podcast production is most rewarding for you. You're really encouraged to learn and grow in areas that you enjoy, regardless of your skill level, to try your hand at everything. And you're in such a wonderful and supportive atmosphere. I couldn't recommend the program enough. If you're interested in podcasting, if you've already done a bit of podcasting but want to learn more, it's just it's so perfect. I really couldn't ask for a more perfect opportunity. I remember in January when my contract was ending with the New York Times and I spoke to Laura for the first time over Zoom. As she was describing what she was trying to do with Shelter in Place as a whole, I remember laughing during the interview and saying to her, listen, I am not religious, but this just seems like fate. It was truly exactly what I had been looking for. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all program because every single one of us was different, not just in our goals, but in our talents, our visions for ourselves, our understanding of ourselves professionally. I have grown more rapidly over the past several months than I have in almost any other professional situation that I've ever been in. My expectations were that I was going to gain more experience with audio and podcast production. And that definitely happened. But what I didn't expect that ended up even being more valuable was learning about myself, leaning into my strengths, compassionately looking at where I can improve and challenge myself. The openness and transparency and sense of community is something that I have never had in any professional situation. And it enabled me to do better work. Everybody was each other's cheerleader. I've made lifelong friends through this program. I've made amazing professional connections. I've received career advice, resume editing, writing coaching. I've learned so much about what it means to enjoy working, what it means to enjoy working with other people. This experience is truly what you make of it. Be prepared to learn a lot about yourself and how to tell good stories. Be prepared to tell your story, to talk about things that matter to you, to be supported in that discovery, in that discussion. I've become much more confident in my own voice, in my own ideas, in the creative process, which is very messy and which doesn't always love you back. Laura and Nate are now more than mentors to me. 
Shelter in Place has given me community and mentorship that I don't think I'll ever find again. I forget where I heard this, but I just think it's so true that when people feel safe, people do better work. I think that if I had to pick one quote that describes my experience at Shelter in Place the best, it would be that. Sarai Waters, Alana Herlands, and Winnie Shi worked on an episode that came out just before Valentine's Day, which we called Not the Only One. Here's that episode now. Paul and I love each other. We're a team. He's going to kill me for saying this, but I don't know if romance is the top thing that identifies us. I'm just telling you, when you get married later in life, the big battleground food. (laughs) I'm joking. Not really. If you're a single woman until you're almost 50, you have certain ways that you eat that are probably, you know, super healthy and all this stuff. And you meet a man who's like meat and potatoes. I'm telling you, we've worked it out, but food's a tough area for us and restaurants. You know, I'll eat a bowl of kale with who knows what, and it's just not him. We've worked through it. It's so funny. We can go into an art gallery and we'll both say, well, that's the great painting in here. We don't even have to really speak. It's like, well, that's the obvious choice here. But if we have to find a restaurant together, oh my gosh, war breaks out. For most of my childhood, the house I grew up in was classic 70s. Rust orange carpets and pineapple wallpaper. After years of wishing and saving for it, my parents decided to do a big remodel. Over the years, our house was home to four cats, two dogs, and also hamsters, a turtle, chickens, and for a short time, even a classroom rat. When they pulled up that orange shag carpet and discovered that the cats had secretly been peeing on it, the era of pets came to a swift close. To this day, my mom swears that the cats went to an actual farm, and I believe her. But to soften the blow of parting with our pets, my parents let us kids have a say in decorating our rooms. For me, this was a longing fulfilled. I found pale green wallpaper printed with cracks and marble pillars. We hung curtains around my four-poster bed. We even found a small crystal chandelier. I didn't want a bedroom. I wanted a castle. My princess obsession would be less embarrassing if I hadn't been 16 at the time. Years later, Minneapolis's most successful magician would buy our house and turn my princess room into a man cave, complete with mounted deer heads and a burgundy carpet. It's not a terrible metaphor for how I feel about that princess room now. I was not raised to be a romantic sop, I spent my childhood climbing trees and was equally interested in learning how to throw a spiral as I was in playing with dolls. My mom was a highly capable and independent woman. I can remember seeing my parents kiss often. And on their 25th wedding anniversary, my dad surprised my mom with a trip and small daily gifts, one of which was a tiny glass slipper. But those romantic gestures stand out because they were extraordinary moments, not because I saw them every day. I have a distinct memory of my mom telling me that romance was nice, but it wasn't everything. I also remember my secret scorn after that conversation when I retreated to my room and wrote letters to my future husband. (sighs) My obsession with romance wasn't limited to romantic love. 
it extended to friendship as well. Even as I nurtured the belief that true love would complete me, I was also on a hunt for a soulmate best friend. I was oblivious to the parallels of the time, but looking back at past romantic relationships is not all that different. There were intimate conversations, secrets shared, endless hours spent together, and the strong desire to see each other again. I'm not suggesting that friendship and romantic love share all of the same functions, but in both, there was the hope that those relationships would fill a void in me, and inevitably, there was disappointment when they didn't. My fixation on romantic love as the highest goal was a reflection of my culture. Romantic love has a long history. Petrarch and Dante wrote about it in the 1300s, and even the Bible gets pretty steamy with the Song of Solomon. But the idea that romantic love is the great goal of life is relatively new. For much of human history, the kind of love that made John Cusack raise his boombox and say anything was referred to as lovesickness, a mixture of intense romantic attraction with elements of obsession, impulsiveness, and delusions. The view of love as a sickness isn't totally off base. Today, scientists have linked love sickness to the flood of serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine in our brains, a chemical reaction that looks a lot like what happens when we're on drugs. It wasn't until 1750, when romanticism found its way into poetry, art, and philosophy, that romantic love began to have its day. Before that, marriage was less about love and more about economics. But during the Industrial Age, as people began making enough money to think about marriage as more than a means to procreation and financial support, Romanticism dug its claws in deeper. Individual rights and the pursuit of happiness gained importance, and with them came the idea of marrying for love. During the 1800s, as the number of publishing houses in the U.S. and Britain increased, the dark fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm made their way to the public. I remember those fairy tales, where Cinderella's sisters got their eyes pecked out by birds, and the Little Mermaid's tragic ending is turning to sea foam. But thanks to Walt Disney, the aftertaste that those stories leave with me is now a happy one. After World War I and the Great Depression, Walt Disney saw that people were growing weary of sad tales and wanting to escape their bleak reality. Beginning in 1937, Disney launched a golden age of movies that borrowed from the old fairy tales, but gave them happily ever after endings. It was in this prettier version of those old stories that our cultural obsession with romantic love reached its peak. I bring up this history because with Valentine's Day right around the corner, I think it's worth examining our assumptions about love. And I'm not just talking about the love we associate with marriage, or even with dating, or sex, though the conversation certainly applies to all of those places too. I'm talking about the perceptions of love that affect us whether we are single, or married, or divorced, or widowed. It's a belief so common in our culture that we have to zoom out in history to realize that we've been indoctrinated. The idea that romanticism has fed us, that we've swallowed whole, is that whether in friendship or dating or marriage, our most important quest in life is finding the one, that person who at last will solve all of our problems and make us whole. 
In his essay, How Romanticism Ruined Love, Alain de Botton says, we can at this point state boldly, romanticism has been a disaster for our relationships. It is an intellectual and spiritual movement which has had a devastating impact on the ability of ordinary people to lead successful emotional lives. The salvation of love lies in overcoming a succession of errors within romanticism. Our strongest cultural voices have, to our huge cost, set us up with the wrong expectations. We're surrounded by a culture that offers a well-meaning but fatally skewed ideal of how relationships might function. We're trying to apply a very unhelpful script to a hugely tricky task. I think Alain de Botton is right. It's not that there's anything wrong with romantic love, but that we've zoomed in on it so close has blinded us to the bigger picture. Whether with a best friend or significant other, we expect it to be all snuggles and self-fulfillment. We think there's something wrong with us if it takes work. Even a quick look at the origins of Valentine's Day is revealing. In the Catholic tradition, St. Valentine's Day commemorates the various saints named Valentine who were martyred. In ancient Rome, celebrations of Valentine's Day looked a lot more like those old dark fairy tales than today's Disney happy endings. From February 13th to 15th, the men would sacrifice a goat and a dog and then whip the women with the hides of the animals that they had just killed. The women, who believed that this whipping would make them more fertile, would line up to be hit. The men would draw names of women from a jar, and the two would be matched up for the duration of the festival. Don't get me wrong. I am not advocating any animal sacrifices, and I am certainly not lining up to be slapped with a bloody goat skin. But even this history is a picture of our tendency to brush past the harder parts of relationships, to focus more on romance than reality. I find it helpful here to get a little perspective from others. If you've been following season two from the beginning, then you know that we've called this season Pandemic Odyssey because of our family's rather dramatic and occasionally even romantic journey. Migrating from California to Massachusetts has been the backdrop to the conversations and connections that we've made along the way. One of the places we stopped on our journey was to see my husband's aunt, Sarah, who is also Shelter-in-Place's design director. Sarah and I have very different stories when it comes to romance, but I've learned a lot from her. I got married for the first time when I was almost 50, and I think somewhere along the line, I just figured I wasn't going to get married. And for me, I don't know if this is good or bad, but my life was kind of okay. I was just doing my life. As if to put a nail in the coffin of ever meeting a man, I got a Chihuahua puppy. Three months after getting her, I met my husband. And I remember on one of our first dates, he was at my place. I said, I've got to go walk the dog. And I remember thinking, however he reacts to walking the dog is going to make or break this relationship. And of course, he said, great, let's go. If Sarah was just doing her life when she met Paul, I was the opposite. I was waiting for my life to begin. Nate and I met when I was a senior in college. Our very unlikely meeting was the result of several unlikely events that included a last-minute trip, a failed jet engine, 
an emergency landing, two long future partner checklists, and a box of letters from across the globe. You can hear that full story in season one, episode 54, Mullet Hawk. But the short version is that we had a storybook beginning to our romance. This princess had finally met her prince. I'd found the one. At long last, I would be complete. To his credit, Nate wasn't scared off by my princess industrial complex. Maybe it's because he'd bought into that same fanciful vision of love himself. When we heard older couples say that over the years they'd come to prize companionship or conversation over romance, we'd cringe and whisper that we would never be like them. We would do whatever it took to keep romance alive. True love would save us. I've been married for over 17 years now. Nate and I have had a lot of fun together in that time, and our life has in many ways been an adventure. But I think Alain de Baton is right. Romanticism is a relationship train wreck. It holds up romantic love as the highest goal and leads us to put wholly unrealistic expectations on our partners. I was disappointed a lot in those early years of marriage because Nate wasn't constantly buying me flowers or telling me I was beautiful. That our life together wasn't punctuated by candlelit dinners and constant adoration seemed like a fatal flaw. I thought meeting the love of my life would make my life easier. I'd found the one, so why weren't all of those years of existential longing finally put to rest? I wish it hadn't taken me so long to realize that marriage was more than romance, that to expect another person to complete me was not only unhelpful, but unfair. Nate and I learned together that relationships take work and that being together doesn't automatically heal our wounds. At times, it feels like having a witness watch us bleed. We've had our difficult seasons and our moments of being each other's worst enemies, but we're also each other's best friends. We have a great marriage, but even on our best day, we can't be everything each other needs. In the original Odyssey, romantic love at first glance has a leading role. Like a Disney princess, Penelope waits for Odysseus, even though he's been away for 20 years. And the Odyssey has the happy ending we're all hoping for, sort of. Odysseus returns, he and Penelope are reunited, order is restored to the kingdom once again. But like the real history of Valentine's Day, the details of these penultimate moments of the story are rather gruesome. Homer describes in blood-curdling detail Odysseus's slaughter of the suitors who've been pressuring Penelope to remarry. I reread it this week, and it's gross. But what struck me in reading it this time around was something I'd never noticed before. All of those years when Odysseus was on his odyssey, Penelope wasn't alone. She's got a faithful friend by her side, Odysseus's dear old nurse, Euryclea. It's that friendship that sustains Penelope through the hard years. It's Euryclea who encourages Penelope to welcome Odysseus back once he finally returns. She doesn't replace Odysseus. In fact, it's quite the opposite. She's a great friend to both Odysseus and Penelope and she plays a key role in getting them back together. 
I've had some friends like Euryclea in my life too. When I trace the course of my relationship with Nate from that first meeting nearly 20 years ago until now, there are parallel tracks that go alongside it. Some of my favorite memories from our early years of marriage are of the many nights when our friend Jen occupied the third stool at our little kitchen table. Jen moved to Oakland a couple of years after we did, and for six years, our lives orbited each other closely. We had this sort of friendship where we could stop by unannounced. There was just enough friction to keep us sharp, and more than enough grace to forgive each other when we cut too deep. A good marriage is a little bit like a mirror. It allows you to see yourself more clearly than you could on your own. Sometimes the reflection can be hard to take. In the kindest, best moments of marriage, the other person angles the light, so you don't have to take the reflection all at once. They show you only what you can handle in the moment, what they hope will be helpful and good for you. A good friendship does exactly the same thing. In the moments when Nate and I have let each other down, when all I can see is a distorted reflection, Jen's one of the first people I call to angle that looking glass and give me the needed perspective. Raina Cohen and her story, What If Friendship, Not Marriage, Was at the Center of Life, uses a supermarket image to illustrate our view of romance. She writes, People expect to pile emotional support, sexual satisfaction, shared hobbies, intellectual stimulation, and harmonious co-parenting all into the same cart. In other words, in our search for romantic love, we ask too much. No one can be all of those things all the time. Even being all those things some of the time is exhausting. But Raina says that this is where friendship comes in. She writes that unlike romantic relationships, intimate friendships don't come with shared social scripts that lay out what they should look like or how they should progress. These partnerships are custom designed by their members. Raina says that in our desires for friendship to be deep and committed and cherished, romantic relationships and committed friendships appear to be varieties of the same crop rather than altogether different species. When Sarah describes her marriage to Paul, it sounds a lot more like my relationship now than when Nate and I first got together. But it also sounds a lot like my friendship with Jen and like every other great friendship I've ever had. When Paul and I were getting married, someone very close to me said, oh, she's so independent and she's so strong-willed and good luck, this is gonna be difficult. And he has often said to me that that statement didn't really hold true. Not that I'm not independent, but it wasn't anything that got in the way. And maybe that's what he likes about me. All of these adjectives could be used to describe me as well. I can be very strong-willed and independent. Nate can be too. Sometimes it's difficult. We could learn to like that about each other better. When we met, we each had a checklist of at least 20 items that we were looking for in our partner. Athletic, musical, hospitable, and on and on. That we actually checked off each other's items seemed like a sign. But since then, we've discovered that some things we didn't know to put on our lists might be even more important. I'm sure many of us are married to people that are in some ways quite 
different from what we imagined. I don't know, I have this pet peeve of people thinking they need to find a mate who shares all their hobbies. And I live in Colorado, so it's like, must bicycle ride. Oh, you ride road bikes? Oh, forget it. I do mountain biking. Oh, you cross country ski? Forget it, won't work, I'm downhill. The chances that that's what someone falls in love with is kind of small. When Jen and I met, I didn't have a checklist for friendship. It was okay that we were different in some ways and the same in others. Changing each other or becoming the same wasn't the point. And maybe this is why our friendship was able to flourish. When we disagreed, we either worked through it or gave each other space. When we were interested in different things, that was okay too. It was only after hearing Sarah talk about her marriage that I realized that for most of my marriage, I hadn't extended the same grace to Nate as I had to friends like Jen. Our culture doesn't have quite the same attachment to friendship as it does to romantic love, but maybe it should. We need friendships because they keep us from getting too insular, from falling into the lie that our relationships should give us everything, or that they're just about us. I came across a perspective lately that challenged all of those old notions about romantic love and seemed much truer to my experience of it over time, both in love and in friendship. In their book, The Meaning of Marriage, Timothy and Kathy Keller write, In the past, people got married and had children with the weighty sense that this was a crucial good for society The private happiness view of marriage puts far greater pressure on us to feel passionately in love all the time. It is time to think again of marriage as, at least in large part, a public institution and not just a lifestyle option. Marriage for the good of the community didn't even register on my list of must-haves, but over the years, our relationship has been at its best when it's not just about us. We've welcomed dozens of friends and strangers into our home for Thanksgiving dinners and backyard neighborhood happy hours. We've laughed and cried over the three kids we were raising together and helped each other navigate family conflict. Before we had kids, we spent an entire year together in Manila and almost lost our marriage. But our days spent in the company of the sex trafficking survivors who over time became our friends gave us the courage to continue. A decade later, we still look back on that challenging year as one of the best of our lives. In all of those situations, what made life so rich wasn't just each other, but the community of friends and our connection to a larger purpose. Paul and I love each other. We're a team. He's going to kill me for saying this, but I don't know if romance is the top thing that identifies us. I'm the first generation of women where this was super pounded into, that the greatest thing in the world is to be you and make it all about you. That's great. Have a good career, be a big person, all this stuff. But I don't think it's so worth it to do it at the expense of having a lifelong partner and a deep, meaningful relationship where you go through the good times and the bad times, sickness and health and all that. You're going to be working for a lot of years. I know Sarah and Paul are happy, that even though Sarah was happy pursuing her career before they met, it's nice to have someone to grow old with. But I also hear in her words a deeper truth, one that's bigger than marriage or even romantic love. 
We're not meant to live this life alone. I won't argue that romance and friendship are exactly the same, but in both, I've experienced the parts of relationship that I've come to value most. Both Nate and my closest friends have seen me at my worst many times, and yet somehow they still love me. They help me see the parts of myself that are good and generous, that allow me to forgive and make amends. They remind me that relationships don't just fulfill us emotionally. They connect us to things and people that are bigger than ourselves. I'm not anti-romance. I still love a bouquet of roses and a shared bottle of wine. Our desire to be cherished is innate to our humanity. And we all deserve to be looked at with love and admiration. It's just that when we fix our gaze on romance alone, we miss out on all of the other gifts that relationships can give us. We lose sight of the truth that there isn't just one way to find that connection we're longing for. Sometimes we find it in friendship, sometimes in family. Sometimes the thing we're needing most can be found only in a prayer. For many years after Jen moved away, I felt like my life was incomplete without that kind of friend. I had no shortage of friendships, many of them rich and wonderful and fulfilling. But by then, most of those friends had children or jobs that kept them too busy or spread too thin to invest in a friendship the way that Jen and I had invested in ours. It took the pandemic and a cross-country move to make me realize my error. I had been approaching friendship with the same unrealistic expectations that I'd had for my marriage. I'd been looking for the one, that person who would complete me and make everything okay. When my family and I made the decision to temporarily leave California and wait out the pandemic school year near extended family in Massachusetts, I left all of my friendships behind. Even in quarantine, I'd been able to go for social distance bike rides or hikes with my closest friends. There had been drinks six feet apart in the backyard, even the occasional sidewalk neighborhood happy hour. I was worried that coming to Massachusetts would mean the end to my friendships, that being out of sight would mean I was forgotten. And while it's true that many friendships went underground when the pandemic began, the friendships that have continued through these months have emerged stronger than ever. With apps like Marco Polo and Voxer, even the difference in time zones hasn't been insurmountable. In a given week, I might get messages from Annie or Emily or Laura or Giselle, from Kirsten or Michaela, from Quinn or Christine or Katie. They're messages that keep me going, that hold me up when I'm falling down. What I've found in those combined friendships is the same lesson I've learned in marriage. No single friendship will be the thing that sustains me, but together, they're an essential gift, one that I've come to prize as much as the one I find in my marriage. In her essay, Raina Cohen writes, many of those who place a friendship at the center of their life find that their most significant relationship is incomprehensible to others. But these friendships, can be models for how we as a society might expand our conceptions of intimacy and care. I've learned a lot from marriage, from my own as well as from others like Sarah and Paul, but it's friendship that has given me a picture for how we can care for each other beyond romance. There's an ebb and flow to a good friendship, 
of flexibility that allows it to change with the season or even the day. I used to think that the only friendship I needed was one like Jen's, and I do still need it today. But I've also come to appreciate the way that friendships rise to the surface when I need them most. How sometimes I can go for years without hearing from someone, and suddenly they're back in my life. It's been a new thing to learn in this pandemic, that no friend can be there for me all the time, but that doesn't diminish the strength of the connection. I'm learning that in my relationship with Nate too. And also that sometimes the best thing we can do for each other is to send each other off to talk with a friend. I've been ending each episode of this season with an invitation. This Valentine's Day, do something really special for a friend. Bestow on someone a bouquet of gratitude, a box of compliments, or the precious jewel of making them feel cherished. Maybe the person who needs it most is someone you haven't talked to in a long time. Maybe it's the person who shares your home. Today's episode was originally released on February 11, 2021, and was called Not the Only One. The graduates you heard from today were Alana Herlands, Isabel Obrecht, and Sarai Waters. You can find information on our podcast springboard program on our website, shelterinplacepodcast.info. If you'd like to support this work, become a sponsor, or inquire about hiring one of our graduates, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at shelterinplacepodcast.info. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. A Huda Media Production.